Welcome into this Five Clubs Conversation. I'm Gary Williams. You know, one of my favorite books is a book by David Epstein. It is titled Range, and it's how generalists can thrive in a specialized world. And the guy who's going to join me in just a couple of moments here is, is case proof positive uh, that that is true. Because John Wood, who is going to join me here in a second, was really good at what he did. And he did it for 24 years. And as he was approaching his 50th birthday, he's thinking, you know what, I think I might want to do something else. One of the hardest things for anybody to do, and you can think, no, it's actually really easy to quit. No, actually it isn't, particularly if you don't know where the next thing is going to be and whether you're going to be equally as good at that as you were with the former vocation. He's proven that he absolutely is because he's become an elite broadcaster in a really short amount of time. But how about those years catting for the likes of Mark Kalkovecchia, Kevin Sutherland, Chris Riley, Hunter Mahan, and then finally Matt Kuchar, and then deciding, you know what? Scrap it all. I'm going to do something totally different. Our conversation with John Wood of Golf Channel on NBC coming up. And with that, we welcome in John Wood. John, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for taking the time. You're busy, and I, I know you're busy because you love what you're doing. And it's interesting, you love Mark Twain. And I was, I was looking up some Mark Twain quotes, and, and one of these quotes, of which he has so many that are great, uh, it, this one encapsulates you, and it's, The secret of success is making your vocation your vacation. You love what you do, and you loved what you did formally, and you've truly fallen in love with what you're doing now, haven't you? I really have. I'm, I'm having such a good time. Um, it's a great team to work with. It's a whole new set of challenges, and I'm, I'm kind of used to it now after a couple years in, but, um, boy, I, I, I didn't know how I would um, approach caddying if it was going to be a career. I loved that right away, and the same things happened with commentating. I I fell in love with it. I'm loving the homework. I'm loving the research. Um, I'm loving the challenge of being on the air and uh, trying to communicate what I'm seeing out there. You, um, you know, you have a curious mind, and I, I have such appreciation for people who do. So you have a lot of things that you love. You love music. Um, obviously, uh, you love what you're currently doing now. You love to read. Um, but game, the game of golf specifically, do you remember the first time that you you felt smitten with the game of golf. How old were you? I do. Um, I didn't really start playing golf seriously until I was probably 15. I was always a baseball player, um, lived for baseball, started playing golf in between my freshman and sophomore years in high school. Um, and then from that point on, kind of switched over from baseball to golf. Um, I think the first time I really fell in love with it was that first year uh, of high school golf as a sophomore. They had some really good players, older players on, on our team. Um, and I wasn't sure where I fit in because I was very new to golf. I just, you know, less than a year of really any sort of competition. Um, but when I started playing with those guys and seeing that, gosh, I can hit these shots, um, 
I can hit the shots I'm thinking about. Um, that's when I fell in love with it and, and knew that um, as much as I loved, loved, loved baseball, um, my appreciation for golf grew quickly because it was you weren't dependent on anybody else's opinion of you, not a coach, not a scout. It was what score did you shoot? And, and I love that aspect of golf, and I think that makes it um, arguably the fairest game in the world that it doesn't you're not depending on, on anybody else doesn't matter what you look like or what the shots look like. What did you shoot? And I love that aspect of golf. You know, John, when you start to produce things in the air that you visualize before you do it, you start to ascend in the game. And when you ascend, you get exposed to, to better players. When you started to, to, to move up um, and you got exposed to elite golfers, did you immediately become more attracted to the competition of that? Did you find yourself reflexively thinking, oh, God, maybe I need to repel away from this. These, they're like, all these people can do what I do. Were you attracted to the competition as you got better? I, I really was. And looking back, when I started to get serious about golf, you know, late, late in high school and, 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 you know, the one year of college golf I played, um, looking back, I can tell even then, I didn't know it at the time, but I really looked at the game as a caddy. Um, really breaking it down. And I loved playing, but I think I might have loved the preparation um, and the homework and the, the due diligence more, um, which is why probably I never became a, a great player. But um, looking back, um, I think the, the caddy aspect suited me. I, I, I just um, I didn't realize it at the time, like I said, but um, I've always loved that part of it. Um, the competition was great, but the preparation and everything that went into it, I think I probably enjoyed that a little more. You know, it's interesting. Your career as a caddy, um, I think, was during a time where there was real transition among, you know, players, elite players. Most players on the PGA Tour were like guys who were really good college players, uh, maybe guys who were still trying to live the dream, some mini tour players. Not that there weren't good caddies who were good players. And you can look historically, there were some very good ones. But I'm talking about the lion's share of the guys who were carrying bags could really play. Did you notice that, that players whether it was a buddy system or whether it was just simply an affinity for the game at, at you know, the accomplished level of playing, that started to happen more and more with tour caddies, didn't it? Oh, I, you're 100% correct. Um, when I started, the, the, the kind of way to do it as a player was you got your tour card, then you came out, looked in a parking lot sometimes even, or, or got word of mouth and found a tour caddy to lead you around who knew the courses, who knew the cities, um, but really didn't know the player yet. So you, you knew how to caddy, but you didn't know your player yet. Didn't know his personality. You had to learn that. Um, since I've started, it's really transitioned 180 completely the other way. You bring out a college teammate or you bring out a brother who you've played a, a lot of golf with and spent a lot of time with. Um, they know your personality and how to talk to you and how to motivate you. Um, and they learn how to caddy on the job. So it used to be, you know how to caddy, you learn the player. Now, you know the player, you learn how to caddy. Um, and it's, I think it's a better way to go about it because I think the, the X's and O's are one thing. I mean, and, and you know, once you've caddied for a while, if you have a reasonable intelligence level, you can do that. But learning your player, learning the personality, I think, especially under the gun, is so much more important than the X's and O's. Um, because I always say it's, it's, so, it's almost more important to be able to motivate your player or get in his face or, you know, console him um, than it is to give him the right, the right yardage, which you can do easily.
You know, I want to spend, you know, a fair amount of time talking about what you're doing now, but I am curious just because when I look at the guys that you did caddy for uh, over the course of that time of, of, of your career doing it, their styles were different, but they, they had a, a commonality in this respect. Like, it might have been a little bit more cerebral one to the other. There was a thoughtfulness to all these guys. And I, you know, whether it's Kevin Sutherland, Mark Kalkovecchia, Hunter Mahan, Kuchar, Chris Riley, and then for a little bit, Cameron Champ. Um, I'm going to ask you just very quickly to go through. I'm going to start with Kevin Sutherland. What's the best thing he did? Iron play. He was a, f and still is to this day. Um, one of the best iron players I have ever seen. Um, I spent a lot of time before I started caddying with him, hitting balls with him and his coach, Don Bauckham. Um, and Kevin's iron play was always phenomenal. His club face stayed so square for so long. Um, it was just, his, his iron play was great and he was a fighter. It took him a long time to get through tour school. And once he got through it, I think it, it was like seven, eight, nine trips he went through tour school, finally got his card and when he got his card, he was tenacious. He was not going to let it go. Um, so that 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 would describe Kevin Sutherland for me. And from your part of the world, all right, Mark Kalkovecchia, not from your part of the world, uh, Florida guy. Uh, what's the best thing he did? Oh, just he would get into his zone sometimes. And <laughs> as a caddy, you'd like to be involved, but you knew when Calc was in the zone, you'd say, you know, 143 and run out of the way because because you didn't want to see anything. He had it. When he had it, he had it. And you didn't need to say anything to him. Um, he knew what clubs he wanted to hit. Uh, but it was always interesting with Calc. If, if you were working for him, you'd go 63 holes, not say a word uh, other than a number because he was so on. And then those last nine holes, he was asking you every single shot, what do I need to do? Uh, so, But when Calc was in the zone, it was, it was freakish. All right, Chris Riley, for those people maybe a little bit younger, um, he was an it kid and and was was absolutely a very good player, good enough on a on a U.S. Ryder Cup team in 2004. What was his best quality? Uh, putting for sure, putting one of the best putters I've ever seen. Um, and not only that, he had very carefree attitude. You know, he never got angry, never got upset. He had fun playing golf. It was like he was out there, you know, under the gun trying to win a major championship, like he was out in a cart with his buddies. Um, he just knew how to have fun out there. And I think that's why Tiger liked him so much. Uh, you know, so many people are, are very, you know, rightly so, very serious in their shell um, and was tough to play. But when Chris Riley, even when he played with Tiger, he was goofing off and laughing. And I think Tiger really enjoyed that aspect. So great attitude. All right. You had a hell of a run with Hunter Mahan. Uh, best thing he did. Best ball striker I have definitely ever worked for and one of the top five I've ever seen. Um, he was so good tee to green. Um, his short game obviously wasn't strong, but he didn't need it almost most of the time. I mean, it was his ball striking, his ability to drive a golf ball and hit driver um, everywhere was mm. was amazing. He, he hit it so straight, so square for so long. Um, it was like it was just point and shoot. You know, I'd get to a hole and um, I'd say you see that trash can out there, 320, and, and I'd say hit it right at that. And, it, you know, he'd be within five yards of it almost every time with a driver. So um, fearless fearless player with a driver and uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal ball striker. All right. The last big chapter was, was Matt Kuchar. Uh, best thing he did. Uh, getting it done. Um, I, I think he was a very good ball striker. He was a great short game, um, great attitude, but more than anything with Cooch, you felt like um, if everything wasn't clicking, he was going to find a way to put up a score. Um, whether he was hitting it good, hitting it bad, 
Um, he would find a way, um, and he never shot that high number to shoot himself out of tournaments. He was always finding a way to, to get it in. Um, when he when he played at Burkdale with with Jordan and almost won that Open Championship, you know he didn't hit it that good that week at all. But he was in such a good place mentally, and he knew how to score and work his way around the golf course um, and play one miss all week. Um, so Cooch was just he was just I, I'm going to get it done somehow. All right, and this was you know this was a shorter period, obviously. Uh, Cameron Champ, just just give me a little capsule on him. Yeah, I've known Cameron since he was 14 years yeah. old. Um, um, so I knew him a long time. And I was at the point there where I was trying to decide, do I want to go into broadcasting or do I want to keep caddying? So, um, you know, I, I hooked up with Cameron for that fall. Uh, I think we did five or six events together and I had a good time. Um, his talent level is second to none. Um, he's still got some things to figure out in terms of scoring and how to play golf out there. But um I enjoyed it, I, but it just told me that um, I was ready to do something else. But uh, Cameron, Cameron was just the talent levels off the charts. You know, so many guys out there that you know, I, whether I call them aliens or witches, that that's that's what they are. The thing about Cameron, I did a clinic with him in Granite Bay a couple of years ago. The absence of violence in a golf swing that can produce that that type of speed um, and distance is. It, it's an optical illusion, John. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, uh, there's no computation for the way he swings a golf club and, and the result of, the, of what happens. No, and I still haven't figured it out. I'll tell you a good story. When I first went to see, see meet Cameron at, at, when he was 14, I knew his dad when we were in high school. Um, and dad called me and said, can you come take a look at my son? He's really into golf. And you get those phone calls go watch a junior golfer and you think, all right, I'm going to go watch and I'll watch a, a nice kid shoot an 80 and, and uh, say, stick with it. Um, but when I saw, I mean, I saw Cameron hit two balls on the range and I said, hang on a second. There's, there's something very different here. Um, and you know, Cameron did, they weren't um, from an affluent family at all. Um, they were very middle-class, didn't have a lot of money. Um, but when I called Sean Foley, who at the time worked for Hunter with Hunter for, and I had a great relationship with, I said, Hey, I've got this kid and I've got a really good feeling out of, uh, about him. Can you uh, just, when he's going to be in Florida for a tournament, can you just, you know, spend the day with him, spend an hour, take a look. And Sean said, absolutely. So Cameron was warming up, written ready to see Sean for the very first time. Um, and uh, Sean went over to him and, and said, he, by that time he was on four irons. And I saw him hit two four irons and I said, hang on a second, Cameron. And he called his wife and said, cancel all my lessons tomorrow. I'm going to spend the whole day with Cameron. So it was just kind of a, a, a freakish occurrence. But you're right. You watch him swing and you think that, that's just it's a nice swing, but it's not there's no reason a ball should be carrying 340. But it does. <laughs> It's really amazing. I want to ask you about two particular moments in your career. Uh, two of the most, um, I think, memorable and, and spellbinding moments that I have seen in my lifetime loving golf. And, I, and the first one was Celtic Manor 2010. Because the Ryder Cup, you don't know. I, 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 what I, I think of that week, it's, it's a hurricane. And everybody who's, who's in it is in the eye, but then you touch the wall. And, and, and you, you and Hunter um, and, and Ken Conboy and, and Graham McDowell, you're, you're, you, are, you are smack dab up against the wall. You never know where everything is going to culminate, and you're threading the needle to where this is the moment. Uh, take me through just what it was like for you uh, being in, in the cauldron of, of what that was. 
it was one of the funnest experiences of my life. The pressure was so intense, um, but it was it was it was it's so intense. But you you know once you're in it and you think I can do this, um, we we can do this. Let's let's really buckle down and focus on the job. Um, it was one of the the coolest experiences of my life, and I, I would change the outcome if I could, obviously. But I wouldn't change that experience of being in the final group at a Ryder Cup on the road with everything. The whole match is yours. You know, three days of golf, two years of preparation, everything comes down to, to you and your player. Um, and it, it's an interesting um, experience being out last in a, at a close Ryder Cup mm. because when you tee off on Sunday, there's not many people watching you after you get past that first tee. The first grandstands are full. But then when you start getting into the whole front nine, everybody else is up with the first groups. With, with Tiger and Phil and watching those matches come down to the end. So, you know, you kind of play a, a good portion of the day all by yourself, not big crowds out there. And then as the other matches start to close out, the players and the caddies and the assistants and the fans all start to fil filter back. And you get on that back nine, it seems like every hole, there's another 5,000 people there. Um, and it's just, it's an incredible experience. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, but when, when we got right down to it, the last three holes, and literally there's nobody else playing golf, there's no other groups to watch, every single player, wife, assistant, captain, assistant captain is inside the ropes watching you. Um, it's a it's an incredible pressure because you, you know, week in, week out, it's you and your player. I mean, obviously his, his, his coach is outside the ropes, his wife's outside the ropes rooting you on, but this was something completely different. This was, um, I don't want to let these guys down. I don't want to let my teammates down. And um I don't think uh, I think Hunter felt like that, you know, because he did he hit a poor chip and he knows that. But you know, it, you can't looking back, you can't think that those three days were all on on his shoulders right there. There was a lot of other things that could have happened that, where we could have won, um, and it was unfortunate how it ended. But um, I think Hunter is in the same boat as I am. Is wouldn't wouldn't trade the experience for anything. You were you were on the wrong side of it at Bergdale in seventeen. You alluded to it a couple of minutes ago. I think that thirty minutes. Um, is a 90-minute documentary, and, and hopefully it gets done, and, and maybe the subsequent 90 minutes after it because of, of him becoming completely unhinged with what he produced uh, starting on the next tee. Uh, what was that 30 minutes like for you, and how were you trying to, to massage, placate, and keep Matt's mind where it needed to be? You know, any other player, I think it might have been much more difficult. With Cooch, it, it wasn't. He is so loose out there. Um, he likes to talk about things other than golf. He likes to just, you know, tell jokes and talk about his kids. And so when we when we got, you know, Cooch had a pretty good drive there, and we knew how far Jordan was, and he was away. But we could also tell this is going to be a while. Let's let's go ahead and hit our shot, even though we're we're going to be closer, and then just see what happens. And Cooch had a gorgeous eight iron in there right behind the hole. Um, and then we just started waiting. We didn't know what was happening initially. We could see on a, on a big board. Um, where he was, but we were so far away, we really couldn't tell what was going on. Had he found the ball? Is it is it um, you know is it on the range or is he taking a drop back there? So um, we were watching on on a big screen um, that they had on that hole, like everybody else, and just, just kind of watching it happen. Um, we saw when when he found out he was taking the unplayable and going back and getting to drop on the range. Um, you know, it was kind of surprising that the range wasn't out of bounds, that he was able to go there because the rest of it was a 45 degree slope hill with, you know, knee high grass everywhere. There was just nowhere to go. So, you know, we knew he got to the range, which was a, a pretty good break, but um, still 
you know, we're thinking most likely this is this is six. Um, if he doesn't plays the hole brilliantly, he's going to make a five. So he did, you know, did the Jordan Speed thing and got it back on the fairway, pitched to about eight feet and made the made the par putt. So what was interesting about it was um, we had taken the lead for the first time all day right there. And it felt like he gained momentum. Mm-hmm. It was the strangest thing because you really felt like we're going to walk out of there with at least a two shot lead. Cooch had a great birdie putt that that I thought was going in the whole way. Um, and you're almost thinking this could be a three shot swing here in a heartbeat. Um, and it was only one. And then um, not many people, not many golfers can regroup after that like Jordan did. Um, you know, almost making a hole in one on the next hole, then going eagle, birdie. Um, it was just, it was a fast break. And um, I don't, you know, I don't feel like Cooch really lost that event, which is a good feeling. Had we given it to him, you know, made a bunch of bogeys coming in, that's one thing. But, you know, all credit to Jordan. He went out and took it. And, um, you know, you can't play defense in golf as much as I, as much as I would have liked to right there. But, um, you know, he went out and did it himself. So, and the fact that I'm such good friends with his caddy, Michael and, and Jordan, you know, made it a little easier, but it was a, it was a tough pill to swallow because, because Cooch just really felt like he did everything he needed to do to win a major, um, that week. And it just didn't work out in the end. Your caddy career was, was obviously in a very good place. And, and in 2015, you, you made the decision, and, and so did Jim McKay, uh, to take up an offer from Golf Channel to contribute at the RSM. And I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of, of, of doing the work that I was doing for Golf Channel at the time, and I was very curious uh, to hear both of you. And I thought it was, and this is not hindsight, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, it was a perspective uh, that, that, that you know, viewers had not had before, and we're talking about two of the most prominent um, caddies in the industry who have been in countless huge monumental situations and how can you convey what's on your mind when you look at what they're doing and do it in a really condensed period of time and this was going to be a new endeavor for you what do you remember most about that first foray into television uh i i remember being surprised how much i truly enjoyed it (laughs) um you know tommy roy had come to us with the idea maybe a year and a half two years before um because we we'd know tommy got to know tommy very well over the years um you know we played with him in a pro-am once but we you know every time nbc was covering something we'd see tommy out there looking around we'd talk to him and i think tommy um, had an appreciation for some of the conversations that that i would have with my players and bones would have with phil um, that, that they were pretty interesting. And, and, um, I think he just saw something there that, that might work out in terms of, of being an on-course commentator. So given the chance, you know, we had no idea if we were going to be horrendous, if we were going to be good, (laughs) how hard it was going to be, we were going to hate it, where we're going to love it. Um, but you know, once you get in, it's almost, it's very similar to, to caddying or playing. Once you get a few holes in and, and you get a couple things, right. You're like, okay, I, I can do this. Um, and then you just, you really start focusing on, all right, what can I bring that's different here? I don't want to stand out there and say 152 nine iron to me. That's, it's so boring. And you can see that on the screen. And I want, I really wanted to jump in and, and delve deeply, but be succinct about it. What these guys are really talking about. What is the decision coming down to? Cause a lot of times I don't think the public realizes how much goes into every decision. Um, it's covered, but a lot of the stuff is um, it, a lot of the stuff between a player and a caddy goes unsaid. Um, and I really wanted to explain the deep stuff, you know, why they're hitting this club, what they're trying to do, um, a play that that 
you might sit at home going, what is he doing here? And you want to explain, well, this is what he's doing, you know? Um, so I, I found it fascinating to dive deep and, and really um, in a short amount of time and a condensed amount of time, uh, explain what the, you know, the one or two biggest points about this shot were. Um, and I, I had a blast doing it that first time. And I always, I just kept it in the back of my head. If I ever had the chance, um, if it ever came up in the future to do it full time, that I would be very interesting and it, uh, very interested and it, uh, it just worked out that way. You know, John, preparation is, it's, it's essential, it's necessary. Some people prepare more than others. And the guy who put me on television was a guy named Chuck Gerber, who was a very important figure historically at ESPN, uh, key figure with the Skins game, which was, which was a massive property in golf for many, many years. And, and he told me before he put me on television, I was going to do a college basketball game. He said, if you use 10% of what you prepared You've talked too much. He said, it doesn't mean you've wasted it. You may use it six months from now. You may use it six years from now, but you're better off because you have that knowledge. Don't think that you need to empty the bucket every time you're put on the air. Was that type of advice, was that something that, that you felt like, God, but, but your intuition is telling you, I have all this information. I've got to use it, right? No, you don't. Was that a hard thing to, to get acclimated to? It really wasn't. It's absolutely true what you're saying, but it wasn't hard to acclimate to because you did that as a caddy. Yeah, I've always said a, a good caddy has the answers to 10 questions that never get asked because you want you want when your player asks you something under the gun, you don't want to be sitting there fumbling with your yardage book trying to figure out you want to walk up to every shot. And not only are you getting the number and thinking what the shot is. But your mind starts going, all right, what might he ask me here? And what's the answer to that? If he asked me, great, but I don't need to tell him if he doesn't ask me. Um, because too much information, like anything, too much information to a player can be a bad thing. You know, a guy like Phil wanted all that. A guy like Jordan wants every piece of information. Most guys do not. They want what's important and what is what am I what what can I say to this guy who's gonna that will make him believe in what I'm telling him. And I didn't want to give more than that because that just starts the wheels turning and gives confusion. So, you know, you overly prepare and it's exactly like you said, you have all these answers. And, you know, if, you know, if, if for some reason they came to me and I had two minutes to describe a shot, I could talk for two minutes. I mean, there's no doubt about it, about everything that's really going on, but you don't need all that. And, um, I love that challenge of when I do come to you figuring out, okay, do I have 20 seconds here? Or do I have seven seconds till he hits? And coming up with, you know, if you have to extemporize a little bit and bring in some more to fill that air, or do you need to get right to the kernel right away and say, this is the key to this shot? Um, and it's very similar to caddying. You know, John, the, you, you mentioned two minutes. Two minutes is a lifetime for, for anybody, not so much on like a live from desk, but an on-course reporter slash analyst. Two minutes is a lot of time. And so one of the great skills that I admire so much because people don't understand the chatter, the noise in your ear, uh, all that is going on. I mean, it, it, it's, it, you are really, you're hearing everything that is going on chaotically in the box, which is, is that production truck. And yet you're trying to keep thought. And there's this balance between efficiency and substance. And how can I be efficient and still provide something in 16 seconds, in 22 seconds. Uh, how about that mechanism? Is that something that is a continual process for you? Constantly. It's, it's a constant process. And it's very similar to caddying. As I'm, um, 
I hardly ever get in my, you know, we have a cart and a yardage guy when we go do TV, but I hardly ever get in my cart. I want that time to walk as I did as a caddy to think about, you know, to, to walk up and have that time to really process where's this ball, where's this pin, what might I need to talk about, um, and, and really have a feel for what's going on on the ground. And then when I get to the ball, get the yardage, um, that's when I, the, the wheels really start turning. Okay. I have a 25 second answer here if I have that time. As they come to you, you start figuring out, okay, I'm not gonna have 25 seconds. He's almost ready to go. I'm gonna have 15. And then, you know, you might have a long introduction to the shot from from the guy, the whole announcer. And all of a sudden you go, okay, I got seven seconds here. And I don't wanna say 152 nine iron. What is the kernel? And I love that challenge of going from, you know, 25 to 15 to seven and thinking about, all right, what is the view? What's going to be interesting to the viewer that they don't know already? Um, and, and vice versa, when you when they come to you and you know you've got a lot of time, that's when I love going back and forth with with Zinger or Justin Leonard or whoever I'm working with. Uh, let's let's talk this out like a player in a caddy would. Here's what I'm going to say to you. What are you going to come back with? And how are we going to come to this decision? So those are some of the funnest experiences for me is when you really get down to it. You know, uh, we had an experience last year at the at the match play and, and Justin was calling the the ninth hole and it was a weird tee shot where it kind of goes hard downhill to the right. It can be tough to keep it in the fairway or, and you know, Justin and I had a great discussion. I said, Justin, how can I talk you into three wood here and just leaving it up top for, with an eight iron rather than trying to get, and we had a great back and forth and it was exactly how a player and caddy would do it out there. And um, I love those. I love those times when we have enough time to do that. John, Tommy Roy, you know this. For people who don't, I mean, he's a legendary figure in, in sports broadcast television, uh, not just golf, uh, football. I mean, you talk about things that come to life, the Olympic swimming and the production uh, of doing that for all the years. He's got a closet full of Emmys. But he also has a reputation. People are like, oh, ooh, this not, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy. There, there's, there's a mythology to Tommy in terms of, you know, what you might hear were you intimidated, nervous, fearful at all about not the one-off, not the 2015 one-off, that this is, this is, this is my sensei here. Um, am I prepared to, do, to, to have this man in my ear week in and week out for, for what is now my career? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was nervous. Um, you know, I, I, we mentioned I, I grew up a baseball player, yeah. and Tommy always felt to me like he's that great baseball coach you don't want to let down. And, and Tommy, you know, he'll let you know, good or bad, and you want that feedback. You don't want somebody just ignoring you going, and, and you not getting any feedback on, am I doing this right? Should I do something else? I want it both ways. When I do do something right and I when I do something wrong, I want to know, yeah, he doesn't like that, so let's let's clean that up. Um, I, um, It's a great team at NBC to work with, and they were all huge helps to me. Um, Gary Koch, Roger Maltby, Noda McGay, uh, Justin, um, you know, Dan Hicks, Mike Tirico, everybody. Um, and it's, it was, it's a great team to sit there and bounce ideas off and, and go back and forth. Um, so, you know, Tommy is demanding, but I, I, I like, I kind of like that actually. I don't want, um, I don't want to be out there making mistakes and have nobody say, about, you know, say anything about it. So, um, you have to go in knowing, okay, there's a reason he's got 9,000 Emmys. And if you're not going to listen to that and, and what he thinks about the job you're doing, you're just, you're just stupid. You're burying your head in the sand. So um, I, I have a blast working for Tommy. It's a challenge. Um, but I think that, I think that keeps the, the broadcast a little bit on the edge in a good way. 
you're never completely comfortable. And I think if you're com if you get super comfortable out there, it, I think it kind of it shows in your in your voice. There's no enthusiasm. You just kind of flatline out there. But the fact that you want to bring something to the table that that is unique, um, Tommy really brings that out. Um, you know, the, the whole thing about, you know, when a cat and a player start to converse, you know, lay out, be quiet. Uh, and you were one of those guys. I mean, you, everybody was always told when, when you and, and whether it was you and Hunter, you and Cooch, uh, were talking, it was a layout situation. I'm going to take Jordan and Greller and, and Paul Tesori and Webb. They don't count. I, at some point, I think Paul Tesori is going to hit a shot for Webb uh, before <laughs> his career is over. Who, who, give me a couple players, maybe up and coming, maybe they don't get a lot of airtime. Who, who, who has a really good process? with think box, with conversation, to the player getting into the play box. Give me a couple guys. I love Sam Burns and, and, um, and um, oh, geez, <laughs> Travis Perkins, sorry, uh, good friend of mine. I love, uh, they don't get as much airtime as probably as some other duos, but um, Travis is so prepared. I don't think there's anybody who spends more time on a golf course Tuesday and Wednesday by himself, not necessarily even with his player than Travis does. Um, and he's very sharp. He's very quiet. He's not a guy who looks for the limelight or, or looks to, you know, be on the air, but he is an incredible caddy. I love listening to him talk. I love watching him read greens. I think he's one of the best greens readers I've ever seen. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons Sam Burns has really blossomed. He was always a great ball striker, but now that he and Travis are reading putts together, I think he's taken him to a new level of confidence on the greens. Um, I think uh, Austin Kaiser and Xander are a fantastic duo. I love listening to those two talk. And that's one of those situations where they were friends and teammates before he came out and caddied for them. So it's a, it's a unique relationship. Um, it really feels like a true partnership out there that no, you know, one opinion isn't more important to the other than the other. Let's just get to the right answer. And who cares how, if Xander's right and he talks, you know, uh, talks Austin into something or, or vice versa. Um, I love watching those two go about it because they, they really um, are a true partnership out there. Um, and obviously, uh, the two you mentioned, Greller and Jordan, are fantastic to, to listen to, always fascinating. I, I When I'm with those guys, if they're coming to me, I, I usually just put the microphone in my pocket and I'll say, see you on the next hole because these guys <laughs> will handle it. Um, and, and Paul Tesori, another true great friend of mine, um, and, and he and Weber are just, it's, it's fantastic listening to those those conversations yeah and it's not just on the golf course I mean I you know you watch them through a range session I mean it is it, it is a dialogue um that is got a lot of energy to it um and there's no question in terms of the importance that Paul has had particularly through the transition uh, in 2016 and taking away the anchored stroke um and and having the temerity on his part to say you need to go to it now, I mean, they put his career potentially on the line, uh, and obviously the re results weren't there right away. You're right. They're, they're, they're great together. I want to ask you about a couple things in the game because, you know, you're, you're willing to express your opinion on things. You know, with, this, with the designated series or elevated events, so to speak, look, getting all the best players on the PGA Tour together more often is a great thing, but... It's a different dynamic to when, when Tiger played or didn't play. It was like, well, those events without him feel a certain way. Do you think that there's going to be a different texture over the course of the year? Look, Amex had a great field. Farmers has got a really good field uh, this week. But there are going to be a lot that don't. Um, that, it, it, that there is a two-tour system de facto 
to some degree for the foreseeable future. Is that unfair? Um, I, I don't know that I would put it that way. Um, I think, uh, you know, when they started the world events, um, obviously it, it was, a, it was, a, you know, a smaller field, more elite field. Um, but there was a way in and that's the great, we talked about earlier. There is a way into these events and it's very simple play better. Um, and I, that can be harsh. I know that can be harsh, but none of these guys who are in these ele or not elevated, but designated events or in, you know, in the past, in the world events, none of them were born into it. That's what people need to realize. You're not born into these events. You are in them because you've played great golf. And there's no mystery from the outside to me for a player saying, well, this is ridiculous. I'm playing a lower tour than everybody else. How am I supposed to get up there? Um, it's not, a, it's a meritocracy. You play great golf, you are there. No, there's no scout that can keep you out of it. There's no coach that can keep you out of it. So um, I think the fact that they're getting all these guys together so many times a year is really good for the PGA Tour and for golf. Um, and the other guys, you've got a way in. You have a way to play yourself in. You just have to do it. And there's no, you can't make excuses and go, this is, you know, uh, I, I, it's not fair. Golf is the fairest thing there is. You know, go shoot a score and you will be in those events in no time. So um, it's harsh, but it should be. I think uh, I think this game, I think it's t it's about time that the tour has catered more to the elite players rather than the the middle of the pack guys and for playing opportunities. And there's plenty of playing opportunities. There there are you got to play good in those opportunities to get into those bigger events. So I like it. Um, and the fact that they have to add three events outside of the designated the schedule. They aren't yeah. all going to add the same three events. Right. I mean, all those guys are going to add different events. So you're still going to have, there will be, there, there's always been better fields and, and lesser fields. That's always happened. Um, and I don't think that's going to significantly change because of this system. I think, I think you'll have more event. Obviously you have more events where all the good guys are playing, but I don't think those other events are going to suffer, you know, in, in huge ways. You have been willing to share your thoughts on Live on your social media channels. Just give me, what are, what are the top three misgivings you have about that product? It's a closed tour. You, you can't qualify for it. You have to be picked by someone's opinion, which I, you know, in golf, I'd say I keep harping on it, but golf to me is you shoot a score, you get in. There's no way to get into that unless somebody wants you in it. Um, and I, I think that's, I think that's ridiculous. And to give, um, you know, I don't think there should be world ranking points for their current format because there's no way to qualify for that tour. Um, that's my 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 first misgiving about it. The second misgiving is um, I don't think it's a true, truly competitive experience. 54 holes, no cut, small field, um, and you are paid a fortune up front. Um, the great thing about the PGA Tour is to, to me that I don't care who you are, you know, if you want a major, obviously you got a year's long exemption, but um, if you, uh, you know, show up at the beginning of the year at the first tournament, everybody's at zero. Everybody's at zero. You have made zero money. You have made zero FedEx points. And if you play good and you play well, you are up there. Um, I think it's, um, I don't think those players who left, I think in the long run, if things stay as they are, um, I think they're going to look back and think I, I'm not, I can't possibly be as sharp a golfer as I was on the PGA tour, because every week I have to get out there and prove it. I have to make a cut. I have to compete against 156 people. And um, I think showing up with no cut 
54 holes, 48 people playing. Um, I don't know how it can be as competitive. And I, I don't think, I don't think you can possibly be as sharp as when you have to do it at week in week out and to, to, to not only to, to make money, but you know, to advance in FedEx cup and get in the big events. So, um, and then I, it's just, this is personally, I have nothing against guys who've made the decision to go, but, um, I just personally, I don't like where the money comes from. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that would, that would, that's my personal decision and sure. I don't begrudge anybody, but for me, I wouldn't want to be a part of it. Yeah. You know, what you said about, about the no cut aspect, uh, to me, professional championship golf. And this is why I had misgivings about the World Golf Championship Series. I understand you're trying to, you know, congregate these players together in all corners of the world and you can't bring them all the way here. And, you know, they don't play the weekend. Hey, look, you you, you have a choice. You don't have to show up. Um, It it reeked of it being soft. And you're, you're talking about the best players in the world. 72 holes with a cut is what professional championship golf has always been to me. Uh, and that that is will always be something that if they continue to go in this manner, it it, it just doesn't it, it it does not feel like it is the elite of the elite. That's what the best players do. There's jeopardy. There's jeopardy. There's not you know kind of meander your way into it, and it's one less. Um, so no, I, I'm I'm with you on that for sure. One last thing before I I get to these five quick questions and get you out of here. You had the experience on the live from desk. Uh, back at the President's Cup. And, and the live from desk is, is you know, that's, that's tall cotton. I mean, that is great real estate for people who want to talk about golf because there's depth, there's breadth, there's time. Uh, what did you love most about it? Exactly that. Um, <laughs> exactly that. That y- you could go deep on some subjects. Uh, and, you know, whether it was a philosophical uh, thought about the game, about a team event, about the team room, or about specific shots or specific holes, but you can go very deep. Um, and there's no, there's no, obviously there is a time limit, but not really. You can, you, if you've got enough, you know, important things to say, you know, they'll let you go. Um, and I, I had a great time doing it. I love, I hope I get another chance to do it. I had a great time doing it, especially at a team event, which are my, my favorite events to, to cover anyways. No doubt about it. I, again, I'm not patronizing you. You, you. you did exceptionally well. There's a comfort. Look, you, I've always said this in the great 10 years that I had, uh, blessed to work at Golf Channel. You got to know it and you got to love it when you're focused on one particular sport. Uh, and, and those who do, you know, they, 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 they excel because there's a, there's a natural there's a there's a, a natural existence to the way that they're it's like yeah yeah he loves this hell yeah he does it shows it shows in the preparation it shows in the thought it shows in the engagement in the conversation those are those are fun shows to do all right let me let me get you out of here with these five quick questions because you're a reader um, I'll give you another Twain quote uh, the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read um, I, I don't I don't understand, I, I don't I don't understand people who don't read, uh, who is the most well-read guy on tour, player or caddy? Wow, is that a good question? You are putting me on the spot there. Um, gosh, um, Lucas Glover. He's Lucas. I, yeah, Lucas Glover. We all, you know, wherever I see Lucas, the first word out of his mouth, what are you reading? And then I shoot back at him. What are you reading? He, uh, Lucas always has, you know, multiple books going at one time. Uh, so I would say Lucas. By the way, what is the last book you read? Um, I read a book on songwriting by Jeff Tweedy called How to Write One Song, um, the lead singer from Wilco. So that was the last one I read. 
Very good. All right. Uh, a TV show you are currently binging or consuming. Is there one? Um, I am one of the biggest, I don't know if you remember the show, but I, I, I constantly go back to Twin Peaks. The, wow. the, the show Twin Peaks is my favorite all-time show. I probably watched it and, you know, all the way through, including this last, last season, um, gosh, 20 times because it just never gets old. There's always something new to it. So, uh, there are newer shows that I binge, but the Twin Peaks is the one I constantly go back to. All right. Very good. All right. Who is the colleague you currently work with, with the best off-air commentary? Wow. Um, Boy, is that a good question? I I would say Azinger because uh, Azinger comes <laughs> off on, on on TV is so enthusiastic and and you know always and he's just he's the same way in the truck as we're preparing. You know he's running around, he's talking to different people, and what do you think about this whole? What about these two? Um, so I, I'd say if if I were to put a camera on somebody, uh, I would put it on Zinger. All right, you can caddy for any player in golf history. Who would it be? Oh man, uh, it's easy to say Tiger because that would be the fun, the most fun. But just for me, from a personal fascination standpoint, I would have loved to have watched Ben Hogan play golf and mm. be be there watching him. Um, that to me would have been the, the most interesting historical bag to ever be up on. One thing that that would not happen uh, is anybody saying lay out because I don't think there would be much of a conversation between you and no. him. <laughs> No, it wouldn't. And if you have something to say, you better not be wrong. <laughs> uh, I, I just think it'd be fascinating to watch him work. All right, last one. Uh, the other sport you'd like to broadcast in some role at some baseball. point in your career. Baseball. Baseball. Yeah. No brainer. Yeah, I love baseball. Um, it, it, I, I've, I've had a, a, I'm very romantic about baseball. I, I've, uh, I've always loved it. I've read tons of books on it, watched a lot of documentaries. Um, actually did a, a podcast a couple weeks ago with, with Joe Madden and Tom Verducci. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot about comparing, you know, preparation in golf and preparation in baseball. Um, you know, and, and Joe said, uh, if, if I ever get a managerial job, you're going to be on my staff. And I told him, I, I'm holding you to that, you know, <laughs> I'm showing up in spring training. So you better remember you said that. So baseball would be, uh, I would love to do a baseball game at some point. You need to, uh, yeah, but I, I was thinking you need to appeal to Molly to like do some type of Olymp winter Olympic sport. You would, you would, you would, you, oh. you would, you'd love to do that. Love to do snowboarding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if that's the one sport I'll watch um, anytime it's on do X games, you know, Olympics, anything. I love watching the snowboarding. Well, listen, John, I, I will tell you, I can't tell you how much I appreciate how much you appreciate what you get to do. Um, I look forward to seeing you sooner than later. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. My pleasure, Gary. And anytime I had a great time and I uh, love listening to you. So anytime I can be any, any help to you, let me know. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Really appreciate John Wood taking the time. I have enormous admiration for the, the work that he does, the preparation, and it shows. I mean, it, it shows most importantly with his enthusiasm uh, for this phase of his life and his career covering the game of golf. It's also nice to see that like Colt Nose, who's been on the show, and Smiley Kaufman, who's been on the show, and, and John Wood 
are, are lending their voices to a new generation of viewers and also a new generation of elite players around the world of golf where they have a real connection to a lot of these guys. Well, thank you most importantly for taking the time to watch or listen to this Five Clubs conversation next week with me, Butch Harmon. His thoughts on Tiger, Phil, this young generation of the best players in the world, and also live golf. That's next week on Five Clubs. <laughs>